Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Osmosis Chief Medical Officer Dr. Rich Desai. A new report from the Kaiser Family Foundation shows that while the overall number of telehealth visits in the U.S. is declining now, telehealth visits for mental health remain much higher than pre-pandemic levels. With us today is Andy Flanagan, CEO of Iris Telehealth, which focuses on expanding telehealth psychiatry services. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Dr. Desai. Appreciate the time. Yeah, and definitely call me Rishi. I understand the formality, but uh, but certainly feel free. My to, pleasure. Yeah, totally. Just, just I, show and respect. No, absolutely. <laughs> that's very kind of you. <laughs> um, I'd like to understand just a little bit more about you and, and what got you interested sure. in, in the healthcare space. Do you mind just kind of taking us back to when, when you first got started? Happy to. I'm the youngest of five and one of 26 grandchildren in a classic Irish Catholic family. And so I've seen everything and, you know, we're very close knit. Healthcare is always had a place in my life, if you will, wanted or otherwise. And so I started out my career at Xerox and healthcare is something that was part of what I was drawn to. And I followed that professionally ever since. And I think I've been on almost every side, except this is the first time I'm really leading a medical group per se from the PC model, but being as close as I am and I'm, I'm having a field day. I love it. What stage did you first take a step into the healthcare space? Was that in high school, college, after college? Like, what was that first step? My very first job worked for Xerox Corporation, and I was calling on materials management in hospitals, which was in the bottom basement corner filled with paper. And usually the person had barely enough room to get to their desk. And so that's how it started. And I've seen the interplay between the business of running the hospital and delivering care play out at scale and micro settings and incredibly well and incredibly dysfunctional manners. And so I was really always drawn to trying to help solve that problem. You know, I'm not a clinician and that wasn't my story. I don't think I had the chops in that regard to go through that part of the journey, but I feel like I've been able to fulfill my personal do good while I do well model by always having healthcare in the middle of what I do. I started a software company and it was focused on optimizing cooperative purchasing for hospitals. And many of the large CPOs were customers back in the day. And so it's always been something I tried to understand better. Tell me a little bit about Iris Telehealth. The name itself is very intriguing as well. What uh, got you to land on that name? Well, so Iris is a messenger, right? God from mythology. And it seems fitting for healthcare to draw on, on mythology at a certain level. But, you know, really, we kind of view ourselves as just that, as we're conduits of care. We have always been digital. Our founder, Dr. Tarek Shaheen, is a child psychiatrist, and he started out as a sole practitioner delivering telehealth himself, consults with his patients. And then that led to providing that service to others, and, and here we are today. But our culture is strongly grounded in what we would all recognize as the human condition. You know, one of our values uh, around success every day and people above all else. And, love your work, love your work. It, it really aims at just trying to be self-aware. That's it. And so Iris really embodied a lot of those aspects. No endpoint in mind, just part of the journey. Do you mind walking me through how Iris is different than many other telemedicine services that offer psychiatric consultation or help? Sure. Yeah, first of all, we need a thousand more companies helping, right? So we don't do this as a zero-sum game. And, you know, it's, it's we said earlier, our empathy for the patient journey and the lack of access is paramount. So 
So our story here is that we are focused on serious mental illness. We employ primarily psychiatrists and PMHNPs, and we're in community mental health and federally qualified health centers and community mental health centers and emergency departments of health systems and medical surgical floors. And so we view our job as really kind of sort of stabilization. We're there when escalation occurs, and our role is to provide that incredibly important moment in time when there aren't resources and the clinicians and staff need somebody who's trained, right, a board psychiatrist to help. So we're just part of the care team. We think we differentiate ourselves, number one, by thinking of ourselves as a medical group in serious mental illness. We, of course, provide resources for stress, anxiety, depression, because our patients experience those as well. But uh, we're really focused on strengthening the delivery network. You know, we really believe that there's a risk that our delivery network gets attrited, if you will, and patients are cherry-picked out of the system, if you will, based on their being profitable or some kind of lower medical expense ratio. And the hospitals are left and the PCPs are left with problems. What can they do with limited resources? So we want to help health systems and community mental health centers and clinics transform leverage technology like telehealth, and we see them being integrated. We are technology agnostic, further differentiation. You know, we don't have an app, we don't have a cart, we don't have a camera. And we want people to leverage the technology they have and get the most value out of it for the precious dollars they spent on that technology. You know, I came across a model a while back where three hospitals in, in North Carolina were competing, you know, for patients. But what they realized is that with certain patients, the patients were bouncing between the three ERs, and they were all, three hospitals were losing money on these patients. And so they kind of pooled their resources to, to take care of these folks in the, in the outpatient setting. And many of them had mental health issues. And like what you're saying, sort of, it didn't matter at that point in terms of competition. What they were doing is collaborating to create kind of a, a situation where the patients get better care, and all three of the hospitals did better as a result. In a scenario like that, I'm just trying to imagine, like, how would Iris Telehealth plug in? Like, what concretely would happen for those patients in a scenario where Iris Telehealth was involved versus if they were not involved? I love this question because it's really at the heart of the end game here. We ultimately quietly talk about ourselves as a navigation company. And this is a little bit esoteric, so we don't say this out loud. We just talk to us. But... Because we are working with the Federally Qualified Health Center, the FQHD, the CMHC, and the hospital in the same county, the same city, the same zip code sometimes, we are uniquely positioned to understand that journey of that single patient. And so the way, as we talk about value-based care, we're not worried about the contracting side of it. We're thinking about the pillars and the structure and helping our, we call customers partners, helping our partners figure that out. Because you said it perfectly, Rishi, that if we can focus on the patient for a moment in time and continuity of care, then diverting that patient from the ED early to a CMHC or to a surge resource like we might provide or to a different hospital service line, psychiatric service line where someone's available, everybody wins. The patient wins, their family wins, the insurers win, the payers, the clinicians, everybody and so for us, that means that we have to step in to build the technology, the tools, but also think about patients as individuals by diagnosis to say what typically is happening to see if we can predictively or at least quickly respond if we can't do it predictably. 
You know, when I was kind of thinking about your company and, and what you do, on, on one level, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is great because you're helping those with serious conditions. You, you said that just a, a few minutes ago. And on the other hand, I was thinking, wait a second, you know, those with serious conditions, they may be least able to manage a telepsychiatry service. They may not have the wherewithal to find internet, to use it, to, to know how to... So walk me through that, like logistically, how, do, how does that work for someone, like, let's say that with an extreme case of schizophrenia or Alzheimer's or depression, mm-hmm. like, how, do they, how do they take advantage of these services that, that require a certain level of ability? This is a wonderful question, Rishi, because this gets at the heart of some of the most painful stories. First of all, technology should be viewed as part of the journey. Telehealth itself is not the end game. It's just a facilitation of another method, right? So we need to have an omni-channel a strategy for this particular individual, this, this consumer, this patient, this person that you're describing. And so the resources are available to help that patient. There are people that will go into the community and support the homeless population that have food insecurity, they're living under a bridge, and they have no telephone. Problem is, is that they don't know which person they should call, which person they should go find. And this is where technology can play a role to say, you know, eight out of 10, they came into a food bank, we checked in, we see they're well, they took their prescription with them. These are data points we could track to say the absence of data is data. And with the community, the fragile community you're describing, which I've experienced in my personal life, in my family, these are very personal stories that we should understand happen to everybody in various points of time. We need to think about it that way, bring the full story every time. And so the technology kind of creates a web, a membrane, if you will, a mesh system for us. And that's how I think it'll take to get to the end point of those most difficult patients that you just described. Now, you have an interesting corporate culture as well. Uh, and one element of it is this acronym that I love, SLED, uh, which stands for Suck Less Every Day. Do you mind just explaining to folks kind of the origin of SLED and, and what that means uh, practically for your company? Yeah. <laughs> So it, so it is funny. I mean, every time at a surface level, so we talk about this all the time inside of our company, and I'll give you examples. But externally, when I explain this, I always laugh. And it's because it's cheeky. You know, it's the sort of thing that nobody ever wants to talk about. Nobody wants to admit I had a bad day or I had a bad moment or I could have done better or whatever. And so inside of our company, we talk about this. We talk about sledding. Let's go sledding every day. And we say it that way so that, and what we keep saying, what we're sending the message is that it's okay for me to make a mistake. It's okay for me to be human. There's space here to say, I'm feeling down. Like this isn't a good day for me, or boy, I could have done that better. Or I wasn't as empathetic to my peer or so-and-so had a tough time and I didn't reach out. I could have done that. And so no matter where the bar is, it can be better. And that optimism is embedded in forgiveness. It's embedded in in ownership. And so I own me. And that includes me owning the fact that I say, I don't think I did that very well. And if I can do that as a CEO, everybody can do it. And so we spend a lot of time talking about that because this this is a tough business. You know, we are a medical group. We're delivering care to some of the toughest patient journeys in the country with low reimbursement and technology disadvantages. And so everyone, you know, they have their lives. They finish working during the day and they go home. We want them to go home and say, I did good today. And even if it wasn't my best day, I really made a difference in the world. 
And that's okay. I paid a fair wage and I did well. I did good. And so we try and remind each other that that's the story. This is the journey we're in. And it creates a lot of, you know, self-confidence and, you know, we're going fast and I want people to make decisions. This is a highly empowered environment, but we all know, you're worried about, will I get in trouble if I make this decision? And the answer is not if you're sledding. I mean, just learn from it is the answer, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's awesome. I like I like that. I'll probably try to start adopting that, not just professionally, but uh, within my family, because I think that's a really wonderful way to uphold your own life and also teach kids as well how to not worry about being perfect. <laughs> the next thing I want to kind of learn about is is the future. I mean, you, you've described kind of the problem very clearly. I think, as you said, it touches everyone's life, yours, uh, mine. And then at the same time, we're, we're hearing things like there's new words that are in the public lexicon, like metaverse. Mm-hmm. That wasn't a word that people used two years ago, three years ago. What does the future hold for Iris Telehealth and, and really just telepsychiatry services even more broadly? Like, What are you seeing? What do you imagine will be different five years from now, potentially, from where things are now? Yeah, the first thing I think about is what's going to disappear. And the word telehealth is going to disappear. It's just care. And like literally, just like online banking was a thing. You know what I mean? Like the internet, I have a website. No one talks about any of that anymore, right? Much less I have it on a CD. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to age myself. I could keep going, Rishi. Like we could do this all day long. Right. So, you know. <laughs> a five and a quarter inch flop. Right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. it's okay. Like we're, we're so, so number one, the future is simplification and integration. That, that's really the, the story. And so for the listeners that are coming out of, you know, medical school or they're early in their careers and everything they know in a personal life and they go to work and they're like, yeah, none of that is here. Like what? Like I have to do this way. I mean, that's going to change in our lifetimes. And so the future for our company is that we're going to continue to be invested in ourselves as a medical group and get better. We're joint commission accredited and we're going to lean into that. We're working on creating the next generation medical group. And that means helping clinicians have a work-life balance. I mean, I don't even know how clinicians do that, but that's our aspiration. And we believe that they have that here, and that's why our engagement scores are so high. But you got to fight for that. So we're planning to fight for the clinician experience and the patient experience. And along the way, our technical and our value-based care teams, they're refugees, corporate refugees from big companies and leading tech companies you know. And our journey for them is, hey, you're in a protected area. Go solve the problem. What problem? You know, the problem. Like, I don't know the problem. You know the problem. Go talk to our clinicians. Go talk to the patients. Just keep solving problems. And that's what I mean. It's, it's kind of like sucking less every day. It's like innovation-wise, solve the next most adjacent problem first. Don't swing for the fence. Just make it incrementally better every day. And in the course of five years, look how far we've come. So that's, that's our future. And I, I believe in it. It's sort of a daily story. You just spend a small percentage of your time thinking what could be better each day. And you've done a lot. So actually, that, that's a good segue for me because you've talked about the patients and how they struggle and thinking about their lives and their lived experience. And then you just touched on providers and the fact that a lot of them have to work really incredibly long hours and you're striving to make a better work-life balance for them. What have the last two years through COVID taught you as you've led this company and seen growth like what have you noticed in terms of how providers are managing their own care and how do you guys support that so i would say for the first time in a long time and i have providers in my family i respect the work they do 
trauma nurse. I'm amazed. And so some are in teaching hospitals. I would say for the first time, it's okay for the clinician to be vulnerable, for the clinician to have a tough day and be public about it. You know, the clinician burnout, not only is it real, we're seeing it, but it was always real. And so now all of a sudden, like, it's not like it just happened. So it's the recognition, just like the stigma associated with behavioral health, mental health issues is dropping, it's not gone. The space, the personal space for clinicians to be humans as well is growing. And so we've leaned into that. We kind of have always done that. And I think it's the benefit of having the founder that is also a psychiatrist, right? That he really envisioned what the world was like and what was sound clinical care, but also what was a good practice of medicine personally. So that's my view. Now we're a teaching company, as you know, and so we're always looking at things through the lens of like teaching or filling in knowledge gaps. You know, in your experience, what are some things that you've encountered? Maybe they're myths or just misunderstandings that you'd like to clear up for audience, maybe just educate us on so that we're all a little bit smarter. You know, I'm going to go back to technology because that's really kind of sort of my sweet spot. And the problem that they see is being worked on. You don't know by whom or how fast, but it's like the metaverse. Don't know what it is. Here it comes. Didn't know what telehealth really was two years ago. Telehealth is going to disappear. The very best of it will be integrated and the rest will be discarded. And it's going to happen again. And we're starting to see this with EMRs where patient engagement platforms and the Cures Act is opening up portability of data. It's slow. We're cautious as a country, as a world. But I do think that progress will continue to be made. And so their voice is important, just like yours on this podcast. You know, we're going to continue to get better. I know that that seems impossible when you have these huge behemoths like Epic and Cerner who are just so big, they can't be touched and they don't care. They do care. And there, there are people inside those companies that do care. So it's just such a big thing. It moves slowly. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because I think another thing that is sort of this low-lying concern for a lot of folks is feeling commoditized. You know, like, mm -hmm. hey, if now I'm going to be part of this platform, am I essentially sort of a, a medical version of an Uber driver? or a Lyft yeah. driver where, where now I'm sort of seeing patients through a platform and they control really everything that they want to control and, and I sort of do their bidding. So I appreciate you saying that. And I guess that might be a good point to kind of ask my final question, which is like, what advice do you have for folks that are going into medicine? Maybe they're going into clinical medicine. Maybe they're interested in the business side of medicine or improving it in some, like you said, a tangible but adjacent way, maybe a small improvement. But really right next to where they're already working. What advice do you have for folks that are looking at you and looking at your career and maybe aspiring to do something like that? Yeah, so I guess the first thing is that there's a business model for almost anything. And so you're right about the Uber. There are plenty of telehealth companies that are using that business model as an example. And there are high quality medical groups doing the same thing. And so you can find any career you want. You will always be highly valued because of your clinical experience at whatever level you decided to stop, right out of medical school or after years of practice. The second thing is to just have empathy for the corporate side of the equation because they haven't had the benefit of all those years' experience. And so, you know, we talk about people have superpowers. Everybody has a superpower regime. And you just have to be diligent enough to keep asking and looking to find it. And when you find it, lean in. And we want people to identify their superpower and flex it. 
Like, own it. We're all people. It's okay. Like, I'm good at one thing, not 50 things. That's my one thing. Let's make sure that I'm on the field. I have the bat when it's up for that one thing to be decided. And so that's the story with the clinicians. It's after we expect that I had a CMO that I recruited out of a very well-respected health system that you actually have been a part of in your past. And I wanted him because of his clinical knowledge and his emergency experience, apartment experience, and he was going to practice part-time. And I wanted that too. And he wanted to become a business person. He wanted to know everything the business people knew. It took me six to nine months to get through coaching and cajoling and counseling and listening and talking to get him to understand that his superpower was far stronger at 100% than at 50% and 50% business. There are tons of people that would know the business side better than me, better than you, coming out of business school and some of these strategy houses. And boy, when he embraced him for everything he had, he soared. It was it was awesome. That's amazing. I th- so that's my advice. Yeah, no, I love it. I think a lot of times there's this tendency to kind of work on your weaknesses, improve your weaknesses, and there's there's, I think, value there. But less often do I hear people talking about leaning into your strength. And, and that's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, listen, I, I want to thank you for, for taking the time to tell us your story and your inspiration for creating Iris Telehealth. I think that's fantastic. And for teaching us. That was wonderful. Thank you. Likewise. I appreciate the time. Thanks, Rishi. Well, I'm Rishi Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.